Good afternoon. Welcome to the Serious Weekly Security Seminar at Purdue University. Uh, before we get started, I just want to let everybody know that we have the Q&A button um, for the uh, if you have questions. Um, and also, Christine would like to interact with you on, on the chat, too. So if you can locate your chat, you can just go ahead in there and just drop us a hello, say hi, whatever. Um, it's up to you if you want to participate. Um, so it's my great pleasure to introduce our speaker today. Dr. Christine Task is a serious alum who earned her PhD in computer science in 2015. Current she, currently, she is the uh, senior computer scientist at Nexus Research Corporation. Her research focuses on privacy technology and AI algorithms. So this is uh, Christine's second uh, seminar talk, and we're proud to say that her first talk, which uh, I'll put a link to that in the chat, is the number one most watched video on our YouTube channel. So I thought that was pretty awesome. So I looked it up today in our analytics and by far your talk, you know, you've got a really good lead over second place. So that that is really cool. So Christine, we're, we're so happy to have you today. So go ahead, please take it away. Thank you very much. Um, so we're gonna be talking about data, privacy and the, uh, watched it a couple times, Joel, but not 10,000, which I think is about where it's sitting at. So um, we're going to be talking about data, privacy, and the interactions between data and privacy. Um, and this is the talk outline, and um, you don't really need to pay attention to the left-hand side. What we're going to look at is when we want to de-identify data. And de-identifying data means we have some sensitive input data set. We're looking at tabular data, so survey data like census data, Veterans Administration data, transportation data. We're looking at data where we have demographic features and other information. And what we want to do is release that data to the public in some form that the public can use it for analysis and learn things from it, as these agencies uh, like to release data for transparency's sake. But it's very important that you are not able to re-identify any individual in the data. So we need to anonymize it. Um, and I'm going to assume that with this audience, I don't need to make the case that anonymizing is more complex than just taking people's names off it, right? So um, there's a lot of things you can do to re-identify. When you go to de-identify, you have to do something significant to protect against that. <clears throat> Purposes for de-identified microdata. So it can be used for analysis, it can be used to test code, education, all sorts of things. Um, what does it really mean? It really means that we're going to take data on people in complex, diverse uh, communities around the country, around the world, and that data is going to live in some high-dimensional data space um, depicted in the lower right-hand corner there. And what we want to do is make new data that makes the same shapes as the original data, but does it with different people. Okay. How do we do that? Well, that's interesting. So how do we preserve the data distribution? Well, and preserve it accurately and authentically and with good equity for everybody involved um, while protecting the individuals in the data set. So we're gonna look at two very simple techniques to begin with. Um, one is self-suppression. Self-suppression is super easy. Um, it's you know, not really even necessarily a form of, um, it's, it's used to satisfy K-anonymity and what it does uh, is if a count is too small, below K, so if there's fewer than 10 people, um, or 10 or fewer people um, in some cell count uh, in a table, then you redact those people. So that means if the count is too small for some type of person, you just get rid of them. For a differentially private histogram, um, what you do instead of redacting anybody is you add randomized noise to all the counts. So for cell suppression, um, if the count's big, you don't touch it. If the count's small, you get rid of it. For differential privacy, um, and that's a little bit of an oversimplification of cell suppression, but bear with me. Um, DP histogram, you add randomized noise to the counts in order to provide a provable guarantee of differential privacy. Um, so here's the first audience question for anybody in chat. Uh, how many people are familiar with differential privacy? Don't have to be an expert. How many people have seen it before? Possibly no one. So here's what you should do if you haven't seen differential privacy. Um, this is a uh, 
uh, a decade ago, or about exactly a decade ago, actually, I gave a, a talk at Sirius. I was in grad school at Purdue at the time. Um, Chris Clifton's my advisor, and he recommended I do this. Um, <clears throat> and what I did was it went over uh, just the basics of differential privacy, um, why we're adding noise to those counts, what it gets us. Um, the basic takeaway idea is this. Um, I want to be able to make it impossible for somebody to guess whether you were in the data or not. Um, and so what I'm going to look at is what would the data look like if you were in it? What would the data look like if you weren't in it? Um, you know, maybe this is the world where you were in the data and over here is what the data looks like if you're not in the data. And then what I'm going to do is when I add noise, um, all of a sudden, rather than releasing the exact answer, there's sort of a range of possible answers that I could release. And that range of possible answers overlaps with the range of possible answers if you weren't in the data. And so what that means is that when I release that answer, that noisy answer, uh, no attacker can really tell if you were in the data and I was looking at this possible world, or if you weren't in the data and I was looking at this possible world. And this goes through um, all the math and um, the proof and everything. It's actually fairly straightforward. Um, for the rest of this talk, you don't need to worry about that. Just trust me that I can provably protect your presence in the data by adding a certain correctly, you know, um, correct amount of noise, correctly calibrated amount of noise to every count in the data. This was a great slide from that talk. I was very enthusiastic, uh, graduate student, and I said, um, it's really easy to do differential privacy for counts. And the reason why is because when I have a count of people, count of types of people or a count of people with a certain property, um, I know how much that count changes if I add or remove somebody. If it's a count of six people and I add or remove somebody, it's gonna go to five or it's gonna go to seven. Um, and so it makes differential privacy, that whole math thing very easy to do. And there's a whole batch of papers and a whole lot of work uh, talking about counts, differential privacy. Um, which brings us to this talk. So graduated Purdue, uh, came out to DC and a few years later I was, um, that talk turned out to be quite useful. It got a lot of views um, by people who were, you know, becoming introduced to the field. A few years later and uh, my company and me specifically, we were helping out with differential privacy for the 2020 census. We were running the first national challenge in differential privacy for NIST. Um, later on, we were developing synthetic data solutions uh, for the census and we were, um, we were developing synthetic data benchmarking tools for NIST, in addition to, to other uh, differential privacy and synthetic data things. It's reasonable use of 10 years. But what that meant is going from the academic papers that talked about how easy it is to provide privacy um, to the reality of making sure that we produce a product that performs well and does justice and preserves the data for all of the various communities in that data. So now we have the second part of the problem. We can privatize counts. What are we counting? So we're going to go through um, some properties in, um, <clears throat> we're going to go through some basic properties of data distributions. And this is really important. So this is coming from the survey community, um, say relatively, it's not comprehensive, um, but these are just some basic things that if you are working in privacy on data, it doesn't matter if you were, if you were doing anything, that may be impacted by the distribution of the data. So not just de-identification, federated learning, um, cryptographic you know, protocols, a variety of things. These are some things to pay attention to. Um, consistency strength, constraints. So consistency constraints are publicly known logical rules that define empty spaces in the data space. So the data contains kindergartners and divorcees, but the de-identified data shouldn't contain divorced kindergartners. But now we come to the, the first question for the chat. We'll see if anybody takes me up on this. But whether you type it in the chat or whether you just think it, I want you to think. Remember, cell suppression redacts small counts. Differential privacy adds random noise to counts. Which one do you think is going to have a problem with consistency checks, consistency constraints? Which one is going to produce divorced kindergartners? So it's not cell-suppressed data, right? It's going to be the noise. It's not cell-suppressed data. Cell-suppressed data is going to redact those small counts. We're going to lose some information, but it doesn't change any zeros. 
things zeros are left unchanged, big counts are left unchanged. Cell suppression does fine with these. Differentially private histogram though, for a simple differentially private histogram, has to add noise to be able to protect the privacy, whether you remove somebody or whether you add somebody, right? It has to, to privatize all of the possible counts. And if nobody tells it that the things in the blue box are impossible counts, the naive histogram algorithm will generate people there too. Okay. Um, next up, feature sizes. So feature is a variable here. Um, if I have a say 200 records and a feature with only four possible values, then most of the counts are likely to be fairly large, right? How is cell suppression going to respond to large counts? We just did this, but I want you to think about what feature uh, size does. The counts are large. Um, it's fine. It doesn't change the data at all. It doesn't redact it. Not only that, differential privacy is also fine. So for formal privacy, um, it's adding what we're going to say is relatively small amounts of noise. That means the amount of noise that I add, which is constant, it only depends on the fact that I'm counting. It doesn't depend on how many people I'm counting. Um, so that little bit of noise on top of a big count means that the new count you're going to get is pretty close to your original count. The ratio between them is pretty close to one. Um, so differential privacy does well on big counts. Cell suppression does fine on big counts. But what if I have a high cardinality variable? So now all of a sudden I have a lot of possible values for those features. And that means relatively few people in every bin. People are spread out across all that. So question to the audience, who's going to suffer the worst? Here we see cell suppression is going to erase some big portion of our data. Differential privacy does better. But notice here that the, the noise now, because it's the same constant additive amount of noise, the ratio between the size of the noise and the size of the data as the size of the data gets smaller, that, that's getting a little bit closer. So now the impact is going to be bigger relatively on these counts. Um, but of course, it's still doing better than cell suppression, which is redacting most of the data. So the same algorithm that performed well on this feature for that amount of people performs much worse on this feature for that amount of people. So as you're going along adding features to your schema, you kind of have to keep track of how big are those features? How sparse is my data? Um, but it gets better, all right? So now let's look at, I talked about equity a couple of times. And what I mean by that is that in the data, there's more than one group in the data. Um, there's different there's different groups of people, different subpopulations. And those subpopulations may have different distributions. And what you want to do is be able to preserve not only the whole sort of aggregate majority population distribution, but in, as long as they're not too small, you want to be able to do a good job of preserving all of the smaller groups as well, even if their data looks fairly different from the major group. Um, so here we can see we've got uh, white men, Asian men, and it's just a much smaller sample in this data of uh, Asian men than white men. That means that cell suppression, there's a point where the data is small enough that cell suppression will just erase people and you'll actually lose a whole subpopulation. Uh, in fact, this was, this was kind of a serious problem with minority populations in rural areas in the COVID data um, because big swaths of the, the data was redacted, but only for certain demographic subgroups. Same thing that we've seen with the histogram, it's gonna do a little bit better with this data, um, but it is still relatively worse um, utility than with the uh, larger majority population. We're able to preserve it, we're not redacting them, we're not erasing them, but the noise has more of an impact. Um, in fact, you can see here, you know, never married is twice as much as divorced, but here it's just a six and a three, only three people. I really shouldn't be preserving that data for for privacy's sake. And in fact, actually, after I add noise, um, now that that difference has been erased. Because if we're exactly matching people, all of a sudden we're not really providing privacy. Um, okay, so that's something to be aware of, subgroup sizes. Um, but it gets more interesting. Okay, this is the first fancy one. So feature correlations. 
um, if two features are tightly correlated with each other, then some combinations of those features will occur rarely, while others in combinations will occur frequently. This will tend to result in larger counts, even with smaller group sizes. So here, 30 people or thereabouts, we, we couldn't do, um, had trouble preserving that. Um, over here, with a small number of people, um, I'm able to preserve it, but it's because none of my children have been married um, and that there is a much more likely for my um, extreme older folk to have been widowed. Um, so here we see a, a tight correlation. And both algorithms perform, and this is, this is interesting, pay attention to this. Both algorithms perform the way you want them to in your head when this is the case, which is to say there is clear majority population and clear outlier. And when we redact groups, um, that means we are redacting only the outliers and we are tending to preserve the majority for both cases. So a lot of times when you just have a mental model of what the data looks like, when you're thinking about these sorts of partition-based privacy things, these histogram-based privacy or you know um, table-based privacy, what you're thinking is that there's going to be some groups, some variables that are very correlated. Some um, some bins are going to be very full of people. Some bins are going to be very empty, and that's what you're trying to preserve. But that doesn't necessarily happen. You're not guaranteed that. So now, if I pick something new that is not at all correlated with age. Um, and I have favorite ice cream flavor. And it turns out people of all ages love all ice cream flavors. But now that's a type of disaster for our cell suppression, right? There goes the whole data. So same number of people, but now they are distributed um, now because we're looking at the combination of features that are independent of each other. All of a sudden our counts are smaller and the impact of privacy on utility is much greater. Um, that's because combining these two independent features in the same data is spreading them out to many smaller counts. And the people we're redacting here, they're not outliers. It's not rare or, or strange for a 10-year-old to like chocolate ice cream, the same way it is for a 10-year-old to be widowed. Um, this is just what happens when we have a small data and we're collecting over independent feature combinations. Of course, this differentially private histogram, same thing as always, right? Smaller counts, um, bigger relative noise, it's doing better than cell suppression. Okay, so now we get to the fun part. You might say from the previous that if what we're trying to do is understand a uh, data distribution, um, that maybe we wanna focus on features that are correlated with each other and not focus on features that are not correlated with each other. And that will tend to preserve big counts. That will tend to make things run the way we think they're gonna run and it'll be fine. Um, but it turns out, and I've got a chocolate-based example, but we see this in real data, which I'm gonna go show you here in a moment. Um, there's no reason why you can't have two subgroups in the population with different feature correlations. So that the same feature um, is independent for one group and dependent for another group. And even though bakers and chocolatiers here started with the same population size, they both have 30, um, because this feature is independent for them and correlated for the chocolatiers, what will happen is cell suppression will erase the bakers and preserve the chocolatiers, which is really not what you're expecting to have happen when you do privacy. <clears throat> same thing happens again. Um, less relative noise for the correlated data, more relative noise for the smaller data, the independent data on differential privacy. Okay. So I promised real data, but this was a uh, an overview of things to think about, right? So that was, we have correlation patterns and the fact that they're different, right? We're trying to avoid small counts. That means we want correlated patterns, but we want them we have this problem that they're different for different subgroups. So we're painting ourselves into a corner here. Um, we're also aware that there's small groups and they're harder per to preserve um, through privacy, but we want to try to preserve them if we can. Um, we know that just casually using these high granularity uh, informations, these variables with 
high cardinality makes things much more challenging. Um, small features work more like what we think, you know, this, this technique should work. And we know that consistency constraints exist and different approaches may or may not be aware of them. And I made up all of this data uh, this morning. So let's look at real data. Um, and here we go. I've made a promise here, Google SD NIST. Let's Google SD NIST. You can try this at home. That's synthetic data NIST. Okay, synthetic data report tool, GitHub, right there. Okay, NIST diverse communities data excerpts. So what this is, um, SD NIST, that's all you have to do. Uh, this is a set of data excerpts which have been chosen specifically to help um, algorithm developers understand how their algorithms perform on diverse data. So remember we said, monolithic big majority um, communities that are really simple it's easy to get things to work well but real people um, have much more real data have um, much more diverse distributions where we may see a lot of these problems arise like the ones that i uh, described so it's just a, a small set of features we'll take a look at them but i'll show you this real quick first so it loads up here we go um these are chosen from communities all over the country. Um, it's a relatively small feature set drawn from the American Community Survey. We'll show you the features in a moment, but these are all sorts of different types of groups of people. And I expect, hope you will believe me now if I say different types of groups of people make different shapes in the data as far as which bin counts end up being big. Um, how features end up being related or independent from each other and different shapes get different performance. Uh, we have this relatively smaller feature set. Um, and actually today, we're just going to focus on even a smaller set, just eight of them. Um, but these, again, have been chosen because they've got interesting relationships between them. So we have disability features. We have income, education. Um, we found the income decile for you, so you don't have to think too hard if you want to use a, um, a decile for the income instead of the, the full number. Um, race, things about family size. Uh, whether you're in a housing unit or group quarters, uh, group quarters include things like barracks and nursing homes and um, dorms, uh, whether you own or you rent, things like this. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so now we're working on real data. Uh, and this is what the real numbers look like. This is on the, the national data set. And here we have um, five little age bins, big counts, Cell suppression isn't changed anything. Differential privacy isn't changed anything by much. And what we're going to see is what happens because nobody releases a table like this. No, nobody who's where, I mean, probably they do someplace. I mean, actually, they do. But for the most part, what we're interested in is releasing data that has a larger number of features. We want, we want to release what's called microdata, um, which is to say, I've got data with the American Community Sur uh, Survey has. Uh, 150 features, 200 features. Um, the, the stuff that we've shown you is 20. Right now, we're just going to look at eight. Here I have two features, and you guys should all see how this is going. Now that I've added more combinations, I have a larger space. My counts are getting smaller. Cell suppression starting to redact stuff. The histogram, uh, differential privacy, this is the actual differential privacy. Um, those counts are cl closer. For the uh, the larger counts, you get down to the smaller counts now, and, and maybe they change a little bit more. Um, that's not to say that it's actually adding more noise. It's just that the size of the noise being added is larger relative to the size of the actual count. So three is larger than two as compared to 987 to 986. Um, we had another feature. And so we go. There's 413 different record types. This, at this point, is a histogram with 413 bins, and cell suppression is redacting most of them. Um, 576 record types. Here we are at the end, and cell suppression, this is a uh, proportional sample, That's because I can't fit 576 things on a slide, um, but this is a, a proportional excerpt of the, the actual table. 
And um, you can see cell suppression is redacting the vast majority of it. Different to privacy here, we've grayed things out when the counts have gotten just very different from what the original count was, more than two times off. Um, okay. And here's the important thing. Um, my data is still fine. And I don't know to what extent uh, for the folks watching this, their data may or may not be fine. So big majority counts in that population um, are, are still, even with all of these uh, things that I've added, they're still coming out fairly large. They're still getting fairly good performance. That means if I'm doing de-identification and I only check for aggregate performance, if I'm only looking for these big groups, um, then maybe I think it's going, maybe, maybe I believe that it's fine. But realistically, it's not fine because all of these people up here, they're not really outliers. They weren't outliers, you know, six variables ago. They're only outliers now um, because of the way we're collecting this information, because of the way we're insisting on collecting the full uh, Cartesian product, their vision and their veterans, uh, disability and whether they rent or own and whether they're in a group quarters and whether they are married and you know all of these things together is what's making um, all of these counts so small for such a large portion of the population. So what do we do to fix that? Well, synthetic data. Um, so in my spare time, um, I was a, a co-lead on the UNECE's um, Synthetic Data Guide for National Statistical Organizations, and uh, I helped them, I co-led the synthetic data test drive that they did. And here we go to Google again. Synthetic data, these are all looking at fancier algorithms for making de-identified data, um, and they're not gonna be table-based. Instead, they're going to use models to produce data that preserves the distribution. Um, and that is gonna allow them to escape those problems that we saw with the tables, Maybe. Last thing I asked you to, to type in was uh, SDNIST. This one, real simple, synthetic data test drive. So what we did, and here it is, their HLG-MOS synthetic data test drive, uh, is we took, it was this fantastic thing. They, they gathered together um, data users, data owners, from all over the world, statistical agencies all over the world and all the time zones. Um, and for one week, we provided them with guidance on how to go use their own, some, provide them some data and some guidance on how to do synthetic data. Um, and some algorithms and things online where they could access synthetic data. And then we asked them to generate as many synthetic data sets from as many different um, synthetic data techniques as they could and then evaluate those however they saw fit. So what this means is we got from all of these agencies, from all of these statisticians with decades and decades of experience, um, both with the academic and research side of statistics and specifically with this type of data that we want to understand better, um, they went and used a variety of synthesis techniques, which we have archived here. You've got the name, the type, uh, license, um, documents, which teams used it. Um, and then we also have um, the utility metrics. So these people who are experts in data, not what I do, what, what maybe um, the privacy community thinks about when they think about utility for data, but what the statistical agencies think about when they think about utility for data, what, to data, um, <clears throat> and by utility here, I mean that the synthetic data, the de-identified data should maintain the distribution of the original data. Um, so how do you compare those? So here we have all of their utility methods, um, univariate distributions, um, divergence tests, propensity metrics, um, classifier performance, and uh, other methods. Okay. So if you want to know about synthetic data, this is a good place to look. There's a lot more over here. You can look at videos that they made. Um, you can look at the synthetic data guide that came from UNEC. Um, you can look at the, uh, the quick start guide that we helped these folks get started in synthetic data. So if you want to get started in synthetic data, you can click that right there. 
and uh, cool. All right. Um, so that was a good way to go find what's out there, what people are using in terms of uh, data de-identification techniques for synthetic data. And I'm going to pause here. Um, are there any questions? Somebody let me know in chat. Does it make sense when I say synthetic data? So what we're doing is we're taking um, the real data and rather than doing a table and trying to change the counts on the table, um, what we're going to do is take the data and we're going to feed it into some model. And we're looking at three different uh, possibilities here for that model. And that model is going to then produce a new data set that should hopefully be in the same distribution as the original data. And what that means is that analyses that you want in the new data set are going to you know, run the same, ideally, as long as they're population level analyses as they would on the original data. Um, well, the new data should not contain any real people. Um, people are familiar with synthetic data? So at least one person can be the brave person to let me know in chat. Have you guys heard of synthetic data before? Awesome. Okay. Um, and thank you, Chris, for that question. So uh, yes, we, we will actually, I'll show off some really neat tools um, that I haven't had a chance to, to show you yet, Chris, um, about whether or not there's going to be real people in the synthetic data. So that is a risk. Um, you want to make sure that when you're feeding the data into the model and the model's spitting out the new data, that the new data doesn't include real people in it that can be re-identified. Um, and good to know, but I think nobody's using the questions at the moment. Everybody's using the chat, so. Okay. Um, coming back to this. Here are our three methods, uh, decision trees, CURP models, um, GANs, general, generative adversarial networks, and differentially private probabilistic graphical models. So these two up here, they're not differentially private. This one is differentially private. What comes with that nice guarantee? Um, okay. Uh, okay, so we had hoped to, I see chats don't, people in chat don't see other people in chat. So we, we hope to fix that. Um, that's okay. I will go ahead and uh, announce to chat when we're seeing things. Um, I will announce chat to chat. Looking at our first model. <clears throat> so this is a decision tree, a CURP model. Um, and actually, if you follow the directions up on the, the test drive, um, the quick start directions to write your own synthetic data set, it's going to show you how to do it with a CURP model. Um, what this work is, so if you're familiar with decision trees, um, they're just a straight way of, a uh, simple way of making it so that you can predict the variable for a given, you can predict the value for a given variable. You can think of it like a flowchart. So basically what it's doing is it's saying, um, if you have this value for variable A and this value for variable B, then you're gonna have this value for variable C. Um, the Wikipedia example has, uh, predicts whether you survived or died on the Potomac or on the Titanic. Predicts whether you survived or died on the Titanic, depending on whether or not you had siblings, what age you were, if you were male or female. So what you can do is actually use the decision tree to synthesize the value for a single variable. And the way that works is if I'm looking at my Titanic example. Um, I would say I have this record and I know its age and its sex uh, and if it has siblings. And I'm going to work my way down the tree and use that to come up with a new value for did it survive or did it die? Um, now I have that new value for that record. And that gives me a synthetic data, which is three quarters real data and one quarter a new synthetic value. Um, but we can stack these trees. So if I have uh, data with a lot of variables in it, what I can do is use my real values for one and my A and B, my synthetic value for C, and use that to synthesize a new variable D. And then I can take A and B, synthetic C, synthetic D, and use that to synthesize E. And I can keep on going, and that way I can make new synthetic data that's following that same sort of flowchart flow chart variable correlations from the original data. And the nice thing about this is the way the tree works, um, when you build this tree, which you don't do by hand, right? This is a, a machine learning data mining process. Um, what it's doing is it's building the flowchart that hangs on to correlations um, between features 
and drops independent ones, right? So it knows if you're down this side of the tree, if you're in this part of the population, then this is the information we need to make the prediction. Whereas if you're on this other side of the tree, then maybe it's this information that you need to make the prediction. And so that means we're less likely to go capture those, those independent um, marginals that were like in the independent table where we're having problems that makes the data more sparse. Um, okay. Generalized adversarial networks. So for that, we're going to train a deep neural network to mimic the distribution of the input data, and then use that network to produce new data set that should keep the feature correlations from the original data. So this is um, just in the past few years here, we've seen this do crazy, very impressive things with images and text. Uh, it turns out it struggles a little bit more with tabular data. We're gonna look at um, two possibilities coming from the SD Volt library. And both of these, if you wanna check them out, they're linked from that test drive page. Uh, the first one is just the default setting, runs in a few minutes. Second one is the copula again, and that's um, uses sort of a different way of processing the, the data beforehand. And it's supposed to work better on tabular data. Um, and so we'll, we'll also, we'll show you both of those. Um, and neither of those, so neither of these are formally private so far. This one is though. Our third one is probabilistic graphical matter model. Um, Alex, which person doesn't exist? All right. Um, the, uh, the next thing is a differentially private probabilistic graphical model. So the graphical model captures the relationships as conditional probabilities between features. And I realize every single thing here is, oh yeah, this person does not exist. Yeah, that's what the image is. Very cool. Thank you. Remember that now. Um, so you can see how well GANs do on images. And I hope that inspires you with lots of confidence. I realize everything here is circles and lines, but these circles and lines were a flowchart. This was a tree. These here are neurons in the, uh, the neural network. And these are whole features. So this is saying, if I have say sex and marital status and race and veteran disability, um, can I find which of these features are correlated with each other, most correlated with each other, and draw an edge between them that's gonna capture their conditional probability distribution. If they're not correlated with each other, then I'm not going to draw that edge between them. And of course, in, in general, what's gonna happen here is I'm capturing uh, the majority populations, um, potentially. The nice thing about this, so now what happens is once I have these features and I have their conditional uh, probability um, distributions, I can walk through this, traverse this graph, and use it to generate a synthetic record. So I've got a value for A, and then I know from that value of A, I can pick what value of D is likely, and I can pick what value of B is likely, and then I can come over here and use that to pick what value of E is likely, and so on all the way through. That gets me a new record. I keep doing that till I get a data set. Um, these are great for differential privacy because uh, this is the one where that optimistic slide at the beginning about let's all use counts. Well, we can just use counts for this. Um, you can use marginal counts, very simple, uh, relatively low sensitivity, low noise, um, to get all of these correlations between these features. Um, the fewer of them that you've got, the less noise you have to add, the fewer queries you're doing. And if you want to understand that, check out the, uh, the differential privacy tutorial. Okay. Uh, also, real quick, real quick. Um, We're going to type in SDNIST again. We're going to go down and click on SDNIST. And rather than going to this, we're going to skim down and see the, uh, the readme here. And what this is, is a synthetic data report tool. Um, because we would like you guys to use the, um, we would like you guys to use the utility matrix metrics that we shared in that um, synthetic test drive. But that's a lot of work. Like there's definitions, there's documentations, but you don't want to have to code them up yourself. So we've coded them up for you. Uh, the main body of the SDNIST library at the moment, and you just follow the installation instructions, please file an issue if it doesn't work, but it should work pretty easy, um, is this report generator. And this actually you runs on the diverse community data. Um, and you de-identify the data however you please. Do something to the data that make you and your heart makes it feel like the data is more private. We don't care as long as it's in the same scheme as the original data. Give that to us, send it into this uh, system here. 
and he'll go ahead and score your data on a whole batch of different metrics. All of those things listed over at the test drive. And I'm not going to go through them all right now um, because there's finite time in the world and we're focused on other things. But there's a lot here to go explore if you're curious. Um, the one that we're going to focus on is this one. So this is the principal component uh, metric. And I like it because um, I sort of gesture about blobs in the data, wanting to be able to preserve the blobs in the data, preserve the shape of the data, the diverse shape of the data. Da, da, da. And what am I talking about, right? I have eight features. I'm in an eight-dimensional feature space. Um, that's a strange thing to say when we're talking about eight-dimensional or 20-dimensional or 100-dimensional shapes, especially when I want to think about shapes and geometry, normally I'm thinking about numbers. You know, I can say this is the this is the end of the shape that is closer to zero. This is the end of the shape that's farther from zero. They're continuous between them. But when I'm talking about this data, uh, we actually have categorical features. Um, in fact, if you go to the full data set, we've got things like field of degree. What did you major in? What's your career in? Where, you know, what Puma, what uh, district do you live in? Um, so what do I mean when we're talking about data in space? Well, we don't entirely know. Um, but what we have is this, and it's really cool. Um, principal components um, is a linear algebra magic way of saying this axis through the data is interesting. We see a lot of variation on this axis through the data. And what happens is if I can draw two, um, two normal axes through the data, uh, then I can do like a Cartesian plot. I can do a scatter plot, right? So um, I have here the first five principal components of my data set. These are things that are interesting axes through the data. And what I can do is pick two of them and then plot the data with respect to those two axes. So here the, the first one is housing type and marital status. Um, and the second one is age and veteran status. So here we're looking at the scatter plot, what the shapes in the data look like with respect to housing type, marital status, age, and veteran status. And we can see you get a big blob here, little blob here, little blob here. In fact, what this lines up with, and there's a lot of, I, there's going to be some very fancy tools released soon, and I'll, I'll tell you how to, to find them. But this big blob here, that's everybody who's uh, living in a housing unit. This is for institutional group quarters, and this is non-institutional group quarters. Um, but you see here, this de-identified data is not doing a good job of preserving the patterns in the real data. So let's take a look. Okay. Here are our, well, we're not doing self-suppression. We're just doing CARP model GAN and DPPGM. So here's our, our three techniques. Um, take just a moment and let me know in chat, which one do you think is going to win? Chris isn't allowed to answer. Everybody else can answer. So I see people who, uh, who think the CARP model is going to work. So those decision trees, that whole stack of trees, um, is going to perform better, is going to do a good job of preserving uh, those relationships. Or is it going to be the GAN? So the GANs that, um, like Alex linked the, uh, the site for thispersondoesnotexist.com, which is a very cool uh, GAN application, as he says. You've seen all the neat GAN images and, and text data, very convincing. Um, or is it going to be the differentially private probabilistic graphical model that's got this way of capturing the relationships between all the features kind of in, in one big graph? Anybody brave enough to guess? Okay. One for DPPGM. Anybody else? Another one for DPPGM? Good. They did win the NIST synthetic data challenge, but it was a differentially private synthetic data challenge. Remember, we have all of these things that may impact the results. All right. I'm assuming everybody's thought about it now. So let's take a look. So as I said, um, first of all, this is the, um, up here, I think it's institutional group quarters. This is non-institutional group quarters. This chunk here turns out to be um, people who have uh, um, housing. Um, there's also some correlation in here with whether you are housing units, like apartments or houses or whatever. Um, some correlation here with whether you rent or your own. This big streak right here, the way the streaks kind of come out, a lot of that has to do with age. That's the age variable that's sort of drawing things out like that. Um, we see over here is actually um, some vision issues. 
Um, we'll see also along with age, there's uh, layers that are marital status in here. And um, I'm just gesturing wildly. I actually have a super awesome highlighting tool that's not quite ready, but we'll be releasing it. You can use it to find all this stuff for yourself. Um, but we'll show some uh, screenshots from it. So let's start with the copula again. Um, here we see that the copula again is kind of preserving these, but it's got this blob right here. And that blob is because the copula gland is not doing a good job of maintaining consistency constraints. So this person here, their housing type is group quarters. So they're in a dorm, for instance. Um, but also apparently they own that dorm, which is very ambitious. Um, they're also 58 and in a dorm. So this is uh, this whole group right here in the middle. Um, this is an artifact that's happening because the GAN has missed a consistency constraint. Um, and in fact, it's missed a few of them. So here we can see um, these are children less than 15 years old, and that means that their marriage value is null. We have no married kindergartners here. Um, and so we see over here, we've got you know these kids, um, some in dorms, um, some in juvie, I think. Uh, and here we have um, you know at the younger end of this age distribution, younger end of this age distribution. And over here, we actually have people of all ages who are showing up as the null less than 15 years. Um, so it's failed to get that, but remember the copula GAN was supposed to do better than the basic GAN. Uh, this is the basic GAN and it just sort of, it's just suffering. Um, so I mean, we, we could explore it, but essentially uh, kind of it's lost all structure in the data or most structure in the data. Um, okay, now let's look at curve models. So the CURP model we see is actually, it doesn't have that artifact. Um, and in fact, not only does it have that not have that artifact, it's actually doing, um, so we can see here, it's preserving very, very nicely. Um, even this fine-grained thing about uh, age less than 15 years, we can see, you know, there's a batch of smaller dots here. There's a batch of smaller dots here. It's doing a very high, uh, high fidelity job of preserving the relationships in the data. Um, both the ones that shouldn't exist and the ones that should. That said, we see too good utility. We start to worry about privacy, right? This is not differentially private. Um, so let's take a look at these little outliers here. And what's true is that actually uh, PCA, uh, sorry, the um, the CURP model actually very, very rarely in practice, if there's a reasonable number of features, remember they've got a pachinko their way all the way through those trees, they very rarely reproduce full real individuals. Um, instead, what they do is they sort of reproduce similar individuals, but not the same. And, and often they differ in very important ways. So right here, uh, this group right here, this is um, two dots. They are uh, older gentlemen who have never been married. They're black. Um, they're in institutional group quarters and uh, they have a very severe um, veteran disability. And here, this new person who's kind of in that same area, so kind of preserving that part of the relationship, also old, but white. And they were married, but their spouse was absent now. Institutional group quarters, um, very disabled, have problems with vision. And so it's a similar sort of person taking up a similar sort of spot in the data, but you wouldn't look at this necessarily and think, oh, I could identify this person over here, that this white person who's been married is the same and is 68 is the same as this, you know, 70 year old who is black and has never been married. Um, and that's the sort of differences you see for this. Okay, looking at uh, DPPGM, and uh, I tried to for time, and possibly I should have cut more for time, but anyways, uh, I didn't go into numerical versus, uh, yeah, oof, but let me tell you why. Um, I didn't go into numerical versus categorical data. Um, but Talked about a little bit. So numerical data, things like income, things like age, they have many different possible values. Um, so a whole range of things. And the decision tree can do that pretty well because the decision tree in some sense is just sort of reshuffling everything. Um, but for the differential privacy, we actually still underneath in the model, it's still got to have counts of people. And those counts of people still have to fall into categories. And so it's much harder to do that with numerical variables that are very spread out. And that's what we're seeing here, actually, is age um, 
is having a lot of problems for the DPPGM, and we're also having problems with, um, of course, the constraints way back at the beginning. Um, here we are, are generating people who fall into this, um, in that same section where it's not understanding the relationship between being in a group quarters and um, and owning your house. Um, okay, and we can see also it's got some problems with children who shouldn't be married. So here's the important thing though, um, consistency constraints can be added to differentially private algorithms because they're public. There's no reason why you can't add them. Um, they can be done as post-processing. So this could happen with all these techniques. You could just eliminate anything that violates the consistency constraint. Or the neat thing about differentially private algorithms is that if you include the consistency constraints as part of the neighborhood definition, so you say when we're talking about those neighboring possible worlds, adding or subtracting somebody, um, I say it's not possible to add somebody who violates a constraint, um, then that actually improves your results overall um, by basically reducing the number of, of cells in the table and the amount of noise you're adding overall. And so this could probably be fixed. All right, one more. Um, now we're going to look at two other components. This is uh, focused on demographic. So this is the veteran disability uh, and then race and sex are the, the things we see here. And this is going to be veteran disability level up here. It says status, it should say veteran disability status. Um, and down here, these are people who are not veterans. Um, these bars actually end up representing different sexes. And we see races as sort of layers throughout here. Um, which again, fancy tool that does all this highlighting will show all that, but um, we're just getting a sort of shortcut here. So we're looking at people who have extreme veteran disabilities. And the ground truth data that's right up here, these are the group that have vision disabilities. These are the people who don't. Um, and let's go. CARP model does fine. So same thing. We've got the same basic clumps, but if you look carefully, you see they're being made out of different people. But it's not from a privacy. It's not guaranteed. Um, GAN is fantastic. So uh, <laughs> things have been very bad for the basic SD uh, vault, given that these dots in red are the people who have um, severe disability due to military service. Meanwhile, over here in the Copulagan, it's actually been much more peaceful. Um, and somehow the Copulagan got nobody who was severely disabled due to veteran status. Uh, in, in either case, um, and this is where you get to the explainable AI things, looking at how deep learning really works. Um, it's trickier when we are talking about tabular data to understand these things than when you're talking about images or text. So you know when an AI has generated some text that's ridiculous or silly. You know when it's got an image that has some artifact or some strangeness in it. Um, and here, what we're seeing is basically that same sort of strangeness, uh, but it doesn't, it shows up only when we're getting to these sort of interesting complex bits of the distribution where we're looking at the relationships between these features here down in kind of the lower PCAs. Um, and as we get to understand more about how deep learning is working in general over the next decade, um, potentially we'll have better understanding of this, but if you want to play with this and start understanding it now, Again, we've got all the tools you need to play with it. Finally, our friend, DPPGM. And here, it's doing just fine. So there's no real um, edit constraint problems that it's going to run into on these features. Um, all combinations of veteran status, race, and sex are valid. Uh, there's no numerical data features. So it's not having to fight with age or anything. These are all categorical groups. And we see, for performance, very similar to the CARP model, and, and actually, you know, it's a little bit of artifacts here, but really quite close to the ground truth. Um, we're actually getting uh, formal privacy, right? So the takeaway here is that there's a lot of things that can be, if you understand, if you consciously know what the pitfalls and the properties of the data are and what can happen in diverse and complex data, um, even in, the, in these sort of small cases here, right? Um, if you actually look at what's going on, then you can potentially go in and fix these things. So I, I know more about this technique than these. I, I can say, you know, here's things they need to do to go improve 
their results. So they can do straightforward. So add constraints. They can, um, and this is a prototype version. This is uh, Minuteman winner of um, one of the winners of the, the NIST challenges, and um, they have their the code up. You can actually get to it from the SD NIST library, and uh, and then try it out yourself. It's a prototype version. I, the, the group continues to refine that work, um, but we can see just sort of immediately there's things that can be done you know, for all of these, to understand them better, to see why they're doing what they're doing, to figure out how to improve their results, which is what we do next. So um, expected October 22 is a little bit ambitious. I think the paperwork is still kind of crawling through NIST, but very soon we're going to be kicking off the collaborative research cycle. Um, and this is time to Google. Collaborative research cycle. Scroll down a little bit. This is the newer thing. It doesn't have quite the SEO. Um, so what this is, is it's an invitation for all of you, anybody you know, anybody who's interested, to join us in doing the thing I just suggested, playing with all the toys we just showed off, right? Each of these tabs. Um, playing with all the toys, seeing what you can find, and, um, and then working with us together to discover how these things work. So uh, it's two steps. The first one, the exploratory workshop, all we're asking you to do is take um, those data sets, the, the diverse community data sets, and do something to de-identify them, whatever you feel like. So just like I said, as you do for the input for the evaluator, take the data sets, de-identify them somehow your favorite algorithm, your friend's favorite algorithm, something you got off the test drive website, whatever. Send us the de-identified data along with like a little abstract that tells us what you did to it. Um, and then what we're going to do is compile that into a great big research acceleration bundle that can provide kind of a meta view of how all these different things are working on this data. Um, and then we come into the explanatory workshop. So uh, next summer, um, the idea is to have a second phase of this and all this spring, what we're going to be doing is having discussions and blog posts and forum discussions and so on, um, workshops about all the different interesting things we're finding, things to go look at, things like I just showed you and all the stuff I didn't get to fit into this talk, um, things that you guys find and tell us about. And we hope you find some topic, something that's interesting, some observation about the data, some suggestion for improved performance, um, some new way of evaluating the data and submit it for a workshop that we're going to be holding next summer. And um, if you want to subscribe, um, and if I put something in the chat, hopefully everybody can see. Um, so I'll just copy this message right here into the chat. Uh, everyone. Okay. And uh, all you have to do right now is sign up for a newsletter and it'll just let you know the next time there's some pretty pictures to look at. You don't have to do anything. Um, but if you would like to participate, you can either spend just a short amount of time to, to send us a de-identified data set or a longer amount of time to come look through them with us. And that's all we got. So thank you very much. Um, if there's any questions. So I've landed on 5.30 on the dot with no time for questions. I've only asked you questions. I haven't received any, but I'm, I'm happy to, Mike's willing to stick around a little bit if people do have questions. Oh, yeah, we can stay here. Uh, we see if any questions come in. So. Where can you access the data set? So that is right here. All you do is you type in. SDNIST. So type in SDNIST into Google. This stands for Synthetic Data NIST. So SDNIST. And then this is the link you want to click right up top here. And you click that link right here. This is the GitHub page. And this is the Diverse Community Data Excerpts. Go there, shows you everything. Um, by the same token, 
on that. So I guess actually I can show real quick too. I didn't show the README. The README has a batch of um, usage guidance to, to go look through. Um, and please give, feel free to give us feedback on that. You can use the data for whatever purpose you want to. So um, feel free to give us feedback uh, as GitHub issues, um, anything that you're interested in. Uh, okay, that's that. Um, also on that same page is that report tool. So this gives you all the instructions for running the report tool and the report tool makes the pretty reports. Any other questions? Well, thank you guys for uh, for coming and, and listening. And um, I guess if it's up on uh, YouTube in the end, please feel free to share. But also, uh, please share. Please sign up for the newsletter. Just stay in touch. See what we're doing, and um, you know, participate if you if you get the chance if you want to. Yes, thank, thank you, you. thank you. Yeah, we definitely. Uh, it will be up on YouTube uh, in a couple of days here. But uh, Christine, thank you so much. Uh, it was it was a great pleasure to have you back again. And you know, watch out for that invite to our twenty fifth annual, uh, uh, not our twenty fifth annual symposium, but the anniversary of Sirius that will be held at our symposium in late March. So great, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to have you. Take care. Yeah.